Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs, your hobby content alternative. It is Friday, and you know what that means. Got my man, regular guest, Chris from Card Ladder, back on the pod. This time, we are going to be talking about private deals and the art of the private deal and one of ones and some other stuff. We're covering a lot of ground like we always do. If you like what I'm doing over here, hit the subscribe button. Tell a damn friend about the show. Go check out Card Ladder while you're at it, too. There's a little plug for that team that I really, really enjoy. I'm on that platform regularly. It helps me be smarter with what I'm doing. A lot of new stuff they talk about here. Without further ado, let's kick into the conversation. What is up? Welcome back to the show. I have a, a regular in the rotation with us today. I'm joined by Chris from the Card Ladder team. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, we're going to talk about one of ones. We're going to talk about private sales. These are topics that are on my mind, and I've been sharing some things out and figuring we might as well expand on it in the Friday episode. I'm sure we'll cover a lot of other ground like we typically do, but Chris, it's snowing up in Illinois. It's snow. It was snowing here in Indy. Tis the season. How are you? Doing well. Doing very well. How about you? I, I cannot complain. Um, I will say it's always nice, even though it was kind of an ugly win. It's always nice when. Uh, I get a Colts W on a Sunday and can enjoy it and read all of the articles and jump in, be excited about Mannings on Monday Night Football tonight. So I'm feeling good right now. Did you have a good NFL Sunday? I did. I did. The, the Colts are five and five now. Is that right? We're 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 right at five hundred, which we and we've um, we're not world beaters, but we've won five of the last seven, which I'll, I'll take. That's pretty good in the NFL. Yeah, and you know, one of those two losses was a really flukish game against the Ravens that the Colts outplayed them the whole game. And then just a crazy fourth quarter Lamar Magic special. But uh I like the Colts. I think they're 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 easily the best five hundred team in football. And I think if they sneak into the playoffs, I would not want to see that team. I, I hope you're right. And and I will say and then I'll pitch it your way because uh we're it's going to, I'm going to lead into running backs. And it's what I'll say this is that I feel like the running back position has become such a commodity and isn't, hasn't been featured across the league. And, you know, it gets some pub during fantasy time, but then it gets forgotten about for all this, you know, aerial attack and all the quarterbacks. But I'll tell you what, we would, we would, we might not have won a game this season if it hasn't been for Jonathan Taylor and to have, a guy that is just that dominant, um, you know, peeling off 70 yard runs, like it really helps put your team in a really good position. And I know you can appreciate that as a Christian McCaffrey collector, a guy who came back on the field, 13 carries, 95 yards, 10 targets, 10 receptions. They won. You have this theory, like every time Christian McCaffrey plays, they win. And I think that proved itself out. So how did it feel? Seeing your guy back, not only back, but back with Cam Newton in the mix. It was great, too. I mean, that's that's one of he, – he doesn't average a lot of yards per carry usually. He's not like a Barry Sanders type of freak in that regard. 
but to 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 rip off you know over seven yards of carry on a pretty high volume for him is is a welcome sign. And then yeah, ten targets and ten receptions. I mean, he had 161 yards from scrimmage, uh, and, and he was playing on a somewhat limited workload compared to what he usually does. He had more yards from scrimmage than the Arizona Cardinals did. So it, he had a, he had a great game. That was that was terrific. And you know, the Carolina Panthers are the second best 500 team in the NFL. I would have to say, when healthy. And look, Cam Newton coming back is great for McCaffrey too, because now there's this dual threat RPO quarterback that they can slot in there anytime they want. And Cam Newton can handle those goal line runs, which are McCaffrey's Achilles heel. He's, he's no good in the goal line situation, but Newton can handle that. So I just think that's uh, that there's a lot of things to be happy about. Finally with the Panthers, you know, uh, C-Mac went out. I, I think they went like one and four in his absence. Things were not looking good. But then everything turns around. That's how the NFL works, too. One Sunday can really just turn everything around. And I think Patrick Mahomes collectors could talk about that as well. Because one game yesterday, I mean, look, just the week before, uh, any podcast or sports mainstream content that I would turn on was singing the the doom and gloom of the Kansas City Chiefs, and they're not going to make the playoffs this year, and their division is too tough. And they just took it too far in the other direction. And then, you know, the Chiefs go out last night. Mahomes goes for over 400 yards. And now all of a sudden he's like an MVP candidate again, which I think is an overreaction too far in that direction. He's only 13th in QBR still. Still a lot to do. But, yeah, man, football collecting, it it can all change in one Sunday, can't it? And speaking of Patrick Mahomes, right, he's an important topic. It's He's he's important to the hobby. Do you know of anyone who – uh, or maybe not know, or did you see anyone who um, got nervous when Mahomes had a little bit of a skid and got like maybe put their Mahomes cards up? Like, do you see any like sales data? Because my mindset the whole time was just like, you know, all these greats go through these periods where they stumble for a few weeks. And I, my, my mentality, I do not have any Patrick Mahomes cards, but I was like, if I had Mahomes cards right now, I would be unfazed by it, but I know our hobby isn't necessarily like that all the time. And they see something and they jump off the bandwagon when think when it gets rough. Um, but did you see any of that at all? Just from your seat? Uh, you know, nothing anecdotal. I think, uh, obviously it's not as fun to be a Mahomes collector. If you don't get to post to your story every week about how much better he is than everybody else. And they couldn't do that for this year. So Mahomes collectors had to sit on the sidelines and I'm sure that wasn't, fun, or at least they weren't used to having to do that. And the Mahomes market has definitely taken a hit. Um, in card ladder, we track 224 Mahomes cards, some of them high end, some of them mid range, some of them low end. And over the month he's down uh, 10%. So over last month, his market, which, which is, you know, that's not nothing. That 10% is a pretty big drop off. But over the quarter, he's only down 2%. So basically what that means is that a lot of the preseason hype and the early season hype just kind of got wiped away. Uh, I, I didn't see much panicking from Mahomes guys at all, and, and nor should they panic because, like you said, Mahomes is, is, uh, has already shown that he's going to be a perennial top-five quarterback. There's going to be blips. It's going to happen. No, no doubt. And then just to touch on that like high-end, low-end, I think maybe this time last year, maybe 18 months ago, a lot of the conversation in the hobby was, you know, following that uh, prism base or following that prism silver. And 
I don't necessarily want to say Prism Silver is low end, but I think it's getting kind of mixed together that uh, when, you know, a base card market of a player is dipping or declining, people are saying, okay, well, their entire market is declining, which I, I think isn't the case. I think there's a lot of segmentation within those cards. And I know I've been following your content and it just seems like the rare, scarce, more collectible stuff of these Big time players, highly collectible players, have continued to go go up. While on the other side of it, their you know generic mainstream base cards are all going down. Um, so like, I know it's not going to happen overnight, but like, what what do you think? Like, just as a hobby, we can do to educate around this because I think I have a tough time when I hear people saying like, oh, all these cards are going down and this player's market's going down when in fact it's just the the base stuff that just went up too high to begin with. Yeah. Great, great insight there and great point. And we're very worried about this at card ladder. So we actually today, today we released three new indexes. We've been releasing indexes like crazy. <laughs> and today we released three new ones, which are high end mid range and low end. And the cutoffs for low end is 500 and below. The cutoff for high end is 5,000 and above. It mid-range is that in-between chunk of 501 to 4,999. So we broke those up so that that segmentation could bear itself out if it exists. And let me tell you, it exists. It exists uh, uh, in a very pronounced fashion. Uh, but, you know, it really started taking shape this year, the, the splitting the the divergence where the high end continues to set all time highs that index just continues to climb higher and higher whereas the low end index has has tapered off you might even say crashed um, but you know the the so that's part of it is just kind of showing people through data like this is what's been happening but then we need like some sort of analogy to make it more concrete because the thing is. Um, if, if, if I'm new to sports cards and I go on eBay and I see that there's hundreds of thousands of sports cards listed, it's reasonable to think that pretty much anything that I, that pretty much anything should be available on eBay, but it's not all the stuff that's, it's really desirable. It's often not just readily for sale. You have to pay, you have to pay, you have to wait. And so I would come up with an analogy to say, you know, instead of rushing in to buy something and it's okay to sample something, you know, like you know, if you want to buy a 2019 Prism Lakers, first Lakers jersey, LeBron, PSA 9 silver, knock yourself out. You know, it, it's it's a gorgeous card. It's a great card to enjoy. Um, I don't know that the, there's many reasons to be bullish on the market for it, but have fun. Knock yourself out. But if you're really trying to forecast and look at the real fundamentals that operate in a collectibles market and the things that are going to sustain and increase value over the long term, I would think about it kind of like is if you were in the market for a house and you don't go onto Zillow and just expect that the house of your dreams is going to be for sale. And it's just going to happen to show up the very day that you start looking. It's not going to work that way. You need to go on Zillow every day for a month and research all sorts of different areas and tour some open houses and expand your parameter and you know consume content surrounding it. And I would really analogize trying to find a mid to high end card, I would treat it the same way. And I'd be very patient and say, look, you know, you got to wait, 
you're going to have to wait until the the real dream card or dream home comes on the market. And then when it does, you got to be ready to act fast. So when I jumped back in to the hobby, there was the Gary V's, the other loud YouTube platforms. And I was just, I was not going to let anyone influence me, but I wanted to hear all the content and all of the content. Cause I wanted to educate myself. All the content was around these base cards and, you know, the Luca rookie, the Zion rookie, the prisms. And uh, that's what everyone was talking about. And they were talking about these cards going up. And then obviously we know what has happened since then with that market. And we have seen uh, people have quieted down more about the base stuff. And I think it's been leveled off. And now we're seeing kind of high end rise base stuff go down. And I think about like these next waves and these next moments. And one, I think certainly we can turn to, and I, you guys talked about it on the crossover this week is just Ken show, right? The, the golden touch, like this is going to be on Netflix. This show is going to get exposure to the F1 show. Like I've never seen it, but everyone who's talking F1, maybe not everyone that's harsh, but a lot of people talking F1, a lot of people buying F1 cards, they didn't care at all about F1 until they watched that show. And then they started, you know, buying high-end F1 cards and you're seeing hobby personalities across the board into F1 because of this show. Well, you have to think like with Ken's show, it's going to generate, you know, main, mainstream exposure for cards, which is great. We, we, we need that. But, you know, I don't know what the format is, but I would imagine based on what Golden Auctions does is there's going to be a lot of conversation around these high-end cards and these monster prices. And that's going to be some people's entry point into the hobby. They're going to see Ken's show. Ken talking about, you know, LeBron exquisites, uh, PSA 10, Flair Jordans, um, you name it. And so the perception might be for new participants a little different than when people like me got back into it. I'm not really sure what the result of that will end up being, but that's something certainly I'm thinking about. Have you put any thought around that at all? And just like as a hobby, maybe like and especially people in kind of content creator seat, like things we should be doing. Yeah, I, this is a, I'm so glad you brought this topic up because I was just thinking about this today. And the thing that made me think about it was um, it ties back. So I think one of the best pieces of hobby content from 2020 was when you interviewed Rob Varis of Burbank. That's one of my favorite podcast episodes you did. I still go back and listen to it sometimes. And Rob from Burbank, this morning, released on the Burbank Sports Cards YouTube channel, episode one of a reality show about their shop. And it was made in the um, vein of, you know, maybe American Pickers mixed with Pawn Stars. And it was a great length. It was just nine minutes long. It showed off three different clients and the cards that they bought and the deals that they made in the store. And it was spliced against you know, um, interview footage with Rob. And I was just like, you know, this is engaging, fun, easy to consume content. You know, one guy was showing off a Mike Trout that he traded to Burbank. He, he sent over about 30 grand worth of cards and took back the Mike Trout, uh, uh, to the, uh, the O9 Bowman auto. And it, uh, he he told the story of what cards that he sent over in exchange for it. And they showed those cards too. He sent like an 08 LeBron X-Fractor PSA 10 and another card. And, you know, it was simple and, it, and they showed visuals of the cards and they showed him showing his card. 
Then they showed one of Rob's clients, like this guy, he's a great customer of the show. He owns a restaurant. He came in and bought a John Morant, a, a pop two PSA 10 Morant rookie. And he's like, I think Morant's going to be the face of the league. And then they had uh, a celebrity um, guest who frequents the store. He was the third and final segment. And when it was all said and done, I was like, man, this is really good content. This is, this is mainstream ready. And if Ken's show was anything like that, and they, they're able to, just like they did with the Burbank Sports Car Show, they're able to make, the, make it digestible and just kind of show the collectors and them showing their cars, like, this is why I like Morant. This is a pop two. Like, this, I, this is, I really enjoy this card a lot. Or this is, and they got, like, this is my new trout. I'm so happy to have this. And, you know, the cheapest you can find one is 33 grand. But guess what? Mine's not for sale. You know, just kind of like it was showing the cards. It was, it was, it was an excellent sort of entryway into the hobby, talking about prices, but not making prices the focal point. Um, it was really well done. And I think if Ken Show does that, on the platform of Netflix, and it has ample promotion, then we should expect uh, an, an absolute tidal wave of people pouring into our space and going onto YouTube and going onto social media and trying to learn more about cards and learn more about our industry. We have to be prepared for that. It's not going to be like the tidal wave of people that Fanatics is probably going to bring in when they get firing on all cylinders, but it's still going to be a big influx of people and we should be ready for it. And so, you know, from my end, I just think giving people analytical tools so that it's not narratives, so that it's not just, you know, this guy says this and this guy says that, and here's a little couple little anecdotes, but giving people systematic analytical data points to back up arguments or to to contradict arguments is the way to go, uh, even though that complicates things and makes it trickier. So I think that's that's one thing we can do is give people concrete data to work with and look at. And, you know, the other thing we can do, too, is just kind of nurture people um, and understand that no, nobody's going to come in to sports cards and feel comfortable buying a high-end item. You know, they're going to start with low-end items and, and work their way up in most instances. So, I don't know, man, combination of data and education and just kind of those of us already in this space being ready for it. I got to check out that show. Um, I'm going to do that after we get done talking. That sounds exciting. Yeah, anything Rob Averis related, I'm I'm here for it, and I got time for it. Before we jump into the topics, I, I'd be remiss not to talk a, a little NBA and cards. I think just as a whole, like I am, it feels like it's not gone like parabolic, gone extreme this year. Um, I don't know, maybe you've seen something differently, but do you have any just general observations from the NBA card market? Now that we're, you know, a little over a month into the season. Yeah. I mean, the market as a whole. So looking at card ladder has about 10,000 cards in its basketball card index. And it's the monthly change is it's up seven one hundredths of a percent. So in other words, it's been completely flat basketball market, you know, and the season started a little less than a month ago. It's been flat and it's up 6% on the quarter. So, you know, the hype, I guess, is held. There are some outliers though, like John Morant's market is mm. doing well. The total market, even though not all cards in his mar- in his index are doing well, but on the average, you know his index is up. Jordan Poole, you know his index is doing quite well. There's been you know those guys, uh, Cole Anthony, in Orlando, his market's been doing well, and it's it's also weird because normally at this time the basketball market is preparing for the release of Prism. And that's not going to happen for another four months or so. 
So this is timing wise, the energy that the hobby usually is generating for the new crop of prospects and the new products. It's just, it's all time shift that it's delayed four months. So it's, it's weird. It, it feels a little ghost towny in the hobby right now because there's no new NBA products to rip. There's, there's products coming out from last season, you know, like last year's, uh, the 2020-21 optic, you know, just came out a few weeks ago and stuff. But and that's still fun, you know, because there's a lot of good players in, from that class from Lamelo on down. But it's just not the same as having product that would have, you know, Scotty Barnes and Mobley and Cunningham and Jalen Green. Like we should be preparing for a prison product that has those rookies in it, but we're not. You know, it's not going to happen for a few months. So you know, the energy for basketball is fine definitely did not reach a crescendo like it did last year when going into last year, because remember the season started on December 25th. So that's like time-wise, like that's, that's a very different moment than starting a season in mid-October because then it's not really up against the NFL regular season and it's not up against the holiday spending cycles. And so there's just a lot of different variables trying to compare last year to this year. So it's been weird. It's, it's been, I think, I think, like you said, I think you're right. It's, it's been pretty muted, pretty, pretty, you know, anything happening in basketball has been, it's been pretty mellow right so far this year. Yeah. I think uh, this, you touched on the John Morant uh, storyline. He's been a player. I've been, I mean, it's the points and then the, his efficiency rating is uh, one of the, at the top of the league. So I think that justifies maybe people who have cooled off on him. Um, now jumping back in. So it's been fun there. You mentioned rookies. I got to plug my man, Chris Duarte here in uh, Indiana, who's playing some good ball starting minutes. Uh, We're happy for him. But then you said mellow out and you mentioned LaMelo and I got to tell a little story. So I don't do this often, but uh, I was bored yesterday. Baby was down. I had Instagram up and I decided to jump into a breakers live and the breaker was little pole man. And I, hit his live and jumped into it. And when he jumped, jumped in, you see him and he's just busting out national treasure hobby boxes. And I'm like, I'm staying for this. And <laughs> it was, it was a guy in the chat, first box, just nothing. And he was like, he was at a bar. He said, I'll have another. And I'm like, Look, these are $6,500 boxes. And second box, nothing and he goes i think he opened up the last case and he's like i'll have box three this will be my last box box three last card he hit the lamello true rpa i think it was 98 out of 99 um and i'm sitting there and i just like i'm trying to process this i'm just like this guy just went through bought three boxes of national treasures he hit this card but i'm trying to like play it out in my head from a financial perspective but then I go back to our conversation about like this card, like, yes, it's significant, but like, it's got an unworn patch. There's question marks with his autograph. Like, am I crazy? Is the guy who spent the money crazy? And so I, I just kind of like chalked it up to being like, well, I was entertained there for a minute and basketball cards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So that's, that's the real double whammy. Obviously, that guy had the experience. Uh, to remember, but so did you and everybody else who is watching along and just uh, having almost like a minor existential moment there in the hobby. Yeah, that's great stuff, man. That's a great story. All right, well, let's jump in. So I want to get on 
this uh, private deal train. And I think what's cool, card ladder tracks private deals, which I think obviously you have to have the consent of the buyer and seller. And maybe you can get into like how you guys handle that process. I think that would be fun. But I want to like start here where I think our hobby doesn't do a good enough job of vocalizing our abilities to make connections with other individuals one-to-one outside. It can, it happens at shows all the time. It can happen in the online world and it does, but I think there's just more of an opportunity for collectors. I think we've become so reliant on these marketplaces and these auction houses and you name it, which I'm these, these places, these third-party platforms, they enhance our hobby experience. But for me, I always have the most fun and it goes back to the kind of the, the, the hobby experience being rough and brutal. I always have the most fun when I'm trying to find a card and I'm sourcing people. And then I get connected to an individual who has it. And then you're in the DMS and you're trying to figure out how to get it done. That's something I really enjoy in the hobby, but I don't think enough people are like talking about it. So I think just right off the top, like maybe like, I know you've participated in a lot of private deals, like share some, shed some light and some perspective on private deals and like just from your experience. Private deals are great, you know, partially because they're negotiable. So you can work out a partial trade, partial cash deal. You know, if, if you guys are dealing with a card that's tough to value, you can kind of both explain where you're coming from and how you're trying to get to it. And whether or not a private deal materializes, you often end up meeting somebody pretty neat. Because that person has a card that you like and that you want. And so there's that's probably more in common that you have with that person than just that card. And it's it's kind of just like-minded people are gonna be naturally they're gonna gravitate to each other because they're hovering around the same cards. Uh so that's something nice about it too. You know, one-to-one deal making is its own art form. And I and it's a little bit scary. And there is something comforting about just being able to s- sit behind a computer screen and bid on an auction rather than uh, have to negotiate and hash out a one-to-one deal, especially in person. Like if you're doing a one-to-one deal between direct messaging, like that's okay. You know, you have time to go look stuff up and, you know, you can take your time to get back to somebody. But when you're across the dealer table from a dealer or when when you're trying to deal make in person at a trade night, you have to really think on your feet and, and move quickly and you have to come in prepared. So that can be really intimidating and tough. But at the end of the day, it's it's rewarding. And and when you close one of those deals, you're closing a deal on more than just a card. You know, you're you're making a deal with somebody that you for better or worse, usually for better, is gonna be somebody that you have a connection to for the rest of your hobby life. You know, I have I've guys that sold a card to me uh years ago that will still, you know, DM me once in a while out of the blue and just at, inquire about that card. Um, and I, I sometimes think about guys that I sold cards to and I wonder, you know, how they're doing or, you know, I'll, you know, if, if the cards like gone up a whole bunch since I sold it to them once in a while, I'll just send a little message like, Hey, how you doing pretty well on that card, you know, just teasing them a little bit, you know, and being happy for them. So I don't know, is, does that kind of speak to your question? Yeah. And I think, I think kind of what I, I wanted to get into is like this We're like it is, there are millions of cards you know we try to narrow it down and be like all right we have lanes like i collect these players um now within these players these are the types of cards that i like so that that i'm pictured that's commercial of uh it was like maybe 
auto trader or something when the guy's standing there and like the cars are flipping around. And then finally, like there's a bunch of cars. And then there's at the end of the day, there ends up just being one car and it's just customized to what that individual wants. And then he purchases cards. So I think about like the, and the marketplaces and the auction houses, it's so reliant on their inventory and what they have. And us as collectors, we react to that and say, Oh, you know what? Like that falls, that checks like three or four of my qualifiers. I wasn't necessarily looking for this card, but I haven't bought a card in a while. So I'm going to buy this card. Whereas when you're making private deals, it's more like, all right, this is the card I want. Now I'm going to put on my kind of navigator hat and go figure out where I can go to find it. And so you go through that process of negotiation, you get the card. And to me, it just feels a little more rewarding and it seems a little more intentional. Oh yeah, it is. It definitely is. And the, the it's because it's so much more of a true chase. Um, there's still something very, um, you know, chase-y about going on eBay or finding a card that you really like that pops up for auction on one of the, the, the auction houses. There's something nice about that too. Maybe you waited a year for it to show up. And so that's a different type of pursuit, but it's not the same hunt as identifying a card, identifying who has it, and then beginning the process of persuading them to sell it to you. That's a whole different level of engagement and, and involvement and participation. And it can be both more rewarding, I think, for obvious reasons. You know, more work has gone into it, more thought goes into it, it's more deliberate and calculated. But it can also be more frustrating because you can, as has happened to me, find the location of a card and only to discover that it's not available. <laughs> well, what are, what, now, here, now, what are the rules of engagement here? So um, this happened to me this week where someone DM'd me someone's Instagram post and it was a card, let's just say, that is one of a kind. And I messaged the seller who happened to be in the UK. And my approach was, outstanding card. Congratulations on this. I'm just curious, is this up for sale? And if it is, I'd love to talk with you about it. The owner's response back to me was not for sale, but I'll let you know if I do decide to go that route. So now he, he, I believe it's a, he, it could be a, she has left me a little bit of an opening. So my mentality was just calendar reminders to like go in and, and check. Now, is that, do you think that's acceptable? Is that, is that acceptable practice to just go in and check in every so often? Is this something you would recommend? Do you have any other tactics or ideas, anything that you've done that have helped, has helped you out? Yeah, no, it's, that's totally permissible. And, you know, as a person who's been on both sides of that, um, you do like to hear from people who are interested in, in your card, but that you turn away, you don't mind three months later, hearing from them again, that they're interested still, because it's nice to know that the, somebody's interested in the card that you own. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a weird indirect compliment. So I don't think it's, it's off limits. And also like as a person who, you know, on the side of owning a card that other people are pursuing, you can forget who's inquired with you, uh, unless you keep like a, a little black book with the names of all these people, which nobody does. So like, you could actually forget that, like, let's say it does come time to sell that card. I'm sure you have thousands of accounts who have DM'd you over the years now. So are you, how are you going to go through your Instagram messages and find that one guy who messaged you eight months ago and you vaguely remember what his profile picture looks like? 
So it's it's doing the seller or the potential seller a service by keeping in the loop with them because that would be the worst of all worlds is if they decide to sell it and then they can't remember who you were when you went to reach out to them, which is a very realistic thing that could happen. So you just keep yourself fresh in their mind, but not too fresh. But by the same token, you know, the thing that I worry about is I don't want to show too much interest in this item or mm-hmm. or pump it up too much in the seller's mind because then they're just going to think like, oh man, I'm never selling this. I got this guy waiting to buy it if I ever do want to sell it. So I already know I'm good. You know, I know that the value of this card is locked in and it's, it's only upside for me from here. So how about I just, you know, ride out my card. I never want to communicate desperation to a seller. I want to communicate, hey, I'm making an offer. I'm interested in this card. Uh, if you ever do, if you if you're not going to sell it to me now, and you ever do decide to sell it, you know, please keep me in mind. But by the same token, I do have a budget, and I'm going to be allocating my money elsewhere if we can't close a deal at this time. And so that kind of lets the seller know, like, there's no desperation on this end. I am going to move on to other things. I'm not going to bother you. I'm not going to haunt you about this card. But you know, the money is here on the table if you'd like to make a deal now. And maybe in the future, you know, please keep me in mind. I'm still interested, but like. Don't let it go to your head and get a big ego about this card either, you know, because I will move on. It's like a balancing act, if that makes sense. It does. And I would, uh, something that uh, I have done with the DM issue that you just said, and it happens to everyone. There's a lot of DMs and you forget. If there's something important that you're working on or trying to work on, whether you're selling or whether you're trying to buy, like, take a screenshot on your phone and save it to your favorites. Like if you do that, it will not get lost. And that's, that's what I do. And it, it worked for me. So there's a little, a tip that it might work for someone else. Before we get off this topic, I want to talk a little bit about just like private sales in card ladder. I think when the last moment where I think Instagram or my center of the Instagram world went nuts for me was the transaction with the, Brady gold kaboom. Now it was people were going nuts. And I immediately, I was like reflecting on it, trying to be like, wow, that's a pretty significant deal. And so I looked it up in Card Ladder, and then everyone was trying to figure out what it was. And then I just went in and I can't, I had not done this before, but I like clicked in and the information of, the new owner and the seller, it was all displayed there. And I was like, well, <laughs> I know, I actually know these people. So these are the people who got it done, which to me, that seemed like really cool. And it was cool because then I went to the individuals and I got to DM them and congratulate them and say, congratulations on this. And then they told me like, well, this is what I'm, I, I, I did with it. I actually have already moved it around and this is what I got. And it was like such a cool moment, I think. And I don't know if everyone got to experience it the way I I did, but um, that was memorable. And I think it was cool because it would never have happened if you guys weren't tracking private deals. So like maybe talk about that feature and like, I think it's really important. And just like your all's mindset around tracking that in card letter. Yeah, those Brady Gold sales were obviously big headline worthy sales. And so there was a lot of vetting and scrutiny that went into those even more than in the usual case. And I'm, I know I may have gotten on the nerves of the buyer and the seller a little bit but when I did that, but I just, you know, you have to be really careful. Uh, but 
generally speaking, there's the three criteria that we're going to ask for when a private sale gets reported to us. First of all, we need documentation or proof of the transaction. So we need to see an invoice, a bank statement, a wire transfer uh, slip, um, you know, uh, a PayPal screenshot, a, a bank account screenshot. We need something real tangible that we can that we can uh, you know use as the first piece of evidence and sort of the cornerstone of the deal. Then the next thing we need is somebody willing to publicly uh, stake their credibility and their reputation on it. And it can be one of three parties. It can be the buyer, the seller, or the broker, but it needs to be one of those three. And in the case of broker that, that, you know, that's referring to maybe PWCC or golden or, you know, a a well-known reputable entity that was serving as the go-between. And that's really important because when a person or a deal, a high profile deal is made public through the card ladder platform, you know, now there's certain implications to that, that will resonate uh, with that financial transaction including the fact that if ever, you know, there's an audit conducted of that person or, you know, for the purposes of tax reporting, um, that transaction is there and it's publicly recorded. So for somebody, whether the buyer, the seller, or the broker to stake their reputation and to publicly associate themselves with that transaction, and that's a very strong vote of confidence because what they're basically doing is they're taking responsibility for the fact that, they were involved in a transaction of that size, which has tax implications and accounting implications and so on and so forth. So that's an important dimension to this is that there's a party with skin in the game in this deal that's putting their name on it publicly. And so if ever somebody would like to report a sale, but they're not okay with me sourcing them to the deal or at least sourcing one party to the deal, buyer, seller, or broker, if they're not comfortable with that, we're, that's a non-starter. The, the sale's never going to get reported. That People have to be willing to put their credibility on the line for the sale. And then the third criteria, or the third criterion is that um, it has to be a person of good standing and good reputation in the hobby. And that's nothing against newcomers. It's not an unfair bias, but we are biased against people who don't have a reputation or goodwill built up yet. Uh, doesn't mean they never will, but unless and until that happens, you know, it's even if you check the first two boxes, you still need that third box, still need this person to be known, to be reputable, to be vouch worthy. Um, we really need to check all those three boxes. And if we can't, then we're just going to err on the side of caution and not publish the sale. So that's, and then in terms of reporting the sale, the best way to do it is just using your card letter membership. There's, there's an option on any card profile. You just click the little three dots that look like a snowman in the upper right, and you can there'll be a drop-down option to report a private sale. But if you're unable to do it that way, then just uh, DM the card ladder Instagram account or DM me, Chris underscore HOJ on Instagram. So those are the main ways that you could reach out and uh, get involved in reporting a sale, but just be, be ready for the, the third degree. Because it's it's coming, <laughs> no, no doubt. No, I think that is. I think private sale tracking is a. Um, it's it's something I I I I'd love to see more of. So it was I was excited that when I saw that news, I could connect it back with actual people, people within good standing, or at least from my end, people I've interacted with. So I um, wanted to make sure we called that out on the topic. 
Um, let's maybe spend a little time uh, closing this out, talking about one of ones. I think it, it, one of ones is just an interesting uh, debate. I think some people are captivated and mesmerized by the ability to get a one of a kind piece. Other people, not so much. They, it's not for them. Let's let's go from the top. I know you're a one on one guy. Um, what 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 connects you with the one of one? Like, why do you collect the one of ones, and why do you think they're important? Uh, I like one of ones because they're the best of the best, and that's always been something that appealed to me. So I like the idea of striving to be very, very, very best in any facet of life to do the absolute best, get as close to perfection as possible. And if I can't, or I fall short, so be it. But that's the thing that gets me out of that. That's, that's why I roll out of bed for in the morning every day is to achieve something, to, to do the best. And so uh, the one of one symbolizes that to me. The, the one of one is the very best version of a card. So there's just a natural connection there that, that I make. The frustrating part about one of ones is that they can be so cost prohibitive that like for me, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to collect the, the National Treasures logo man one of one of Luka Doncic. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I can settle for Christian McCaffrey one of ones. And, uh, you know, I've piled up about 30 or 40 of those now. <laughs> And I've got, you know, or Christine and I, you know, we've put together about eight Luca one of ones, but we've been focused on those for a long time. So, you know, we've got some rookie one of ones, which is awesome. Um, no Jordan one of ones. Uh, those are just really holy grail category type of cards that Nat Turner is the only person who can own. So, <laughs> you know. But yeah, that's that's the thing behind the one on ones is that it's just it's the very best version of a card, and uh, that's I always love striving for the best of the best. This goes back to maybe what we were just talking about, but one of ones, right? To me, if they are not, you have to go find them. I, I would imagine, right? You have to go look and find them, and so that you know, I would imagine with thirty to forty McCaffrey one of ones, you've uh, been down the road of plucking them out of people's collections, and then how, like the price, right? Like how do you get to a place where you can negotiate a price? Like, are you comparing to like golds? Like talk to me about just like how you figure out since there's not readily available comps, how do you figure out what's, what's a justified price for, for the card? Well, you're always at the seller's mercy. That's the first thing because the seller really does not, you cannot say, well, I'll wait for the next one to pop up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so that's the first thing is be very nice to the seller. And then in terms of pricing, you know, it's very, it's always going to be difficult to do, uh, in the higher end you go, I think the more difficult it gets, but I think one of the techniques that I use or that's common is, um, other one of ones of the same player from the same year from comparable brands. That's a good place to start. And then also kind of looking at what comparable players are selling for. So in when I'm hunting for McCaffrey's, I might quickly reference what a Derrick Henry um, from a similar set would sell for, or, you know, something like that. Look at a comparable player. You can look at other prices of similar cards too, like golds and stuff, but it's just never going to really resonate perfectly. Um, That's always really tricky to try and pull that off. 
you know, I have an example pulled up for kind of when we talk about how the market moves on one of ones and it relates to Trey Young. And so, you know, one of the, what comes to mind is that Trey Young's Prism Gold PSA 10 sold for 150,000 around the same time that his black BGS nine, one of one sold for 444,000. And so there's lots of already in your mind, you're thinking, well, but this is a PSA 10 and this, but versus a BGS nine. And so like, there's a premium on that particular gold. And, and then you think, you know, so is, should the multiplier be three X or should it be more? If, what if they were the same grade, you're never going to get the variables to line up nicely. So it, it gets very difficult to do to, to try and sort it out by looking to golds and stuff, but you have to look there, you know, you have to look at that. You have to, it's an art as much as it is a science trying to price a one of one. And you just really want to take in as much data as you can. Now with the one of ones, um, when I hear one of one, I think of nebula. I think of black. I think of like the shield or the logo man, like, those are kind of what come to mind, but there's one of ones. I mean, I think you guys were talking about like select. There's like 33 one of ones uh, of these players in the new product, which is crazy. So like, you know, to you, like, is it, does it matter? Is it just, if it's a one of one of a player you collect, you're attracted to it? Or do you take into consideration like significance of product lines? Like how do you approach that? You absolutely have to take into consideration the significance of the product. And like a second year one of one is going to command a premium over a sixth year one of one, you know, and the set that the one of one comes from is going to be very impactful as well. So definitely take into consideration, you know, all that stuff. And there's a lot of one of ones. And, you know, so there's going to be one of ones to the base set. I mean, nowadays you can pretty much assume that any card that releases, whether it's in an insert set or it's in a base set you can be pretty confident there's going to be at least a one of one of it, maybe two one of ones of it, like a black and a nebula or, you know, and then if there's a variation, there's probably going to be a one of one of the variation too. And by the time it's all said and done, including in the printing plate, one of ones, which y'all, I don't really see those as being in the same category. The market doesn't either, but they're still cool. I don't want to take away from them, but, but when it's all said and done, including printing plates, you know, players are going to have, like during their rookie season or during the Panini era, they're going to have 200 to 300 one of ones across all the products come out. And so then, you know, for me personally, I start stripping away the one of ones that don't really interest me. So like sticker autograph one of ones don't really interest me. So I, I strip that away right off the bat and that's going to take out 20 to 30% of the supply in a given year. And then I'm stripping away, you know, I'm not huge on the memorabilia cards. So I'm kind of stripping away those as well. So if it's just like strictly a patch card, you know, I have one National Treasures McCaffrey patch, one of one, and it's cool, but it's just, I don't get super excited about those. Uh, so I'm stripping away just the patch one of ones as well. So that takes away another 10 to 20% of the supply. I'm stripping away the plates that's taken away another chunk of the supply. So now maybe I'm down to like a hundred one of ones to 120 one of ones, maybe of a player in a year. And then from there, I'm still narrowing down, you know, I'm filtering out the brands that don't really appeal to me. To think about it differently, the ones that appeal to me the most are those, you know, Prism Black one of ones, Optic Gold Vinyl one of ones, Spectra 
gold vinyl or nebula one of ones depending upon the product and the sport those are the that type of stuff where like i really don't get super excited about autographs or player assets i don't get super excited about memorabilia i like the true cardboard one of ones from the premium cardboard brands and then you know who could be upset with like a national treasures or a flawless you know patch autograph one of one those are sweet too especially staying true to the base set you know if it's an insert from flawless or nt that's not quite a desirable but the base set true patch autograph one of one those are really special cards too so that's that's how i'm always looking at it is base set true one of ones um, from the shiny premium products as well as the premium patch autograph products and then i'll filter out into insert sometimes too if i like the way it looks that's good stuff maybe we close out here you've obviously i would i'll venture to say you've got the most one of one christian mccaffrey's in the world let's just say that so, so. there's there, there's some i know that matters to you uh there's some experience there do you have any advice on just getting those deals done, navigating that, that you can offer up to people that might have been collecting a player for a while, but just don't have any one-of-ones and hear this and it might be inspired to go start hunting or going down that path. Yeah. You know, they come up more than you think because there's more of them than you think. Every year, you know, McCaffrey probably has over a thousand (laughs) one-of-ones if you really think about it, you know, across coming up on five years worth of products. So they're out there and there's different types of them. And, uh, you know, they're just not as rare as it might seem. So I've got, because, you know, people phrase and word things, I've got a number of safe searches on eBay, excuse me, for McCaffrey one of ones and the different ways that people phrase it. So like sometimes people will use all letters, you know, O N E space O F space O N E one of one. Sometimes people will use numerals, you know, the number one, of one. Sometimes people will put one slash one. So having safe searches that um, are tailored to each of those different variations of how people phrase one of one can be helpful in locating them. And then I have to be very precise because one of ones will come up very much. So sometimes people spell, for example, McCaffrey wrong, McCaffrey, McCaffrey. People have different ways of spelling it. So I have safe searches tailored to the different spellings the variations of his name that will come up. So, but keeping a keen eye and having some good safe searches with the different ways that people spell one of one can help you catch stuff that will show up and having a little bit of patience, you know, pays off as well. Reaching out to the community for help and letting people know that this is what you collect. There's lots of people in the community, myself included. If I'm just browsing Instagram and I see a cool card and I'm able to connect that card to somebody that I know, like if I knew that you were a Jonathan Taylor, one of one collector. And I saw one on Instagram, even if it's for sale or not, I'm still going to send it to you just because it's yeah. cool. you can appreciate the card, you know, communicating to the community that you collect one of ones. And this is the player, or the set that you're focusing on is going to help those cards find your inbox. I guess those are, those are some of the tips I would go with. And then, you know, you have to be understanding that people are very, they hold on tightly to their one of ones. So if you find the one that you really like, but it's just not for sale, you should be mentally prepared for that because it happens. And, uh, you know, it can be disappointing to say the least when you have your heart set on a particular one of one or something like that, but it's just, it's never going to be for sale. So you, you, you have to be prepared for that possibility happening as well. 
and I don't, I don't know if you have this, but I'm curious because I think this impacts everything. Do you have identified competition in the Christian McCaffrey segment that you're in? Because to me, like in pockets that I collect, I tend to know the competition and the behaviors, buying behaviors specifically of those people that when something pops up that I see, I know when it's this quick judgment. I got to be like, this falls within these criteria. I've got an opportunity to buy this. I can't even think. I just got to go or I know it'll get scooped up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so that's super true. Yeah, it's, it's the most true with one of ones is when you know there's going to be other people out there competing for them. And, uh, you know, it can get really dicey, too, because if people know that you're a one of one collector of this, you create a market for that card just because people know they could buy it and flip it to you. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's another dimension to all that as well. But there's definitely an advantage to collecting a guy like McCaffrey and singularly focusing on him, because like most of the other people that I've encountered who have McCaffrey one of ones, it's because they're like Panthers collectors or because they're just high-end collectors in general who just have certain McCaffrey cards as part of their high-end PC. I'm the only person I've ever run into who's like singularly focused on McCaffrey one of ones. Like, like that's my task. And my I, I don't think I've run into another person who's like one of their like main collecting objectives is, is strictly McCaffrey one of one. It's a good spot to be in. Um, a lot of good ground covered in this one as always. Before I let you go, what do you want to plug? Is there anything card ladder related? And I, I know you dropped some new features recently. Maybe share those with the audience. Yes. Well, how about this? I almost forgot. I referenced it and then I forgot and I looked at my screen again. I'm going to tell a, a very short story of one of ones and I'm going to tie it into the new card ladder feature. So card ladder has been rolling out indexes, lots of indexes. And these indexes help me tell a story that I'm going to tell you right now. The Trey Young Black one of one, like I mentioned, it sold for 444000 on August 21st, which was a mind-boggling sale. It was a BGS9. Now, when this card was raw, it also sold publicly. So this is like one of those super rare times when you actually have two sales of a super high-profile one of one. And this was in April of 2019, after Trey Young had sort of made his star turn in the NBA, uh, after his 49-point you know, quadruple double. I don't know if it was a quadruple. He went for 49 points against the Bulls in like quadruple overtime. So like this is Trey had been established. He was even a late surging rookie of the year contender. April of 2019, the raw black prism one of one sold for $14,200. So in between April of 2019 and August of 2021, you know, about two and a half years, a little bit less, the card appreciated 31 fold, 31 X. All right. That's enormous. That's incredible. And you, you think if the card had been graded at PSA 10, you know, it might have been even more. All right. So let's compare that using one of the card later features, a Trey Young total market index. Over that same time period, that same two and a half years, Trey Young's total market index was up 9x. So the Black Prism one of one exponentially outpaced Trey Young's market. And then you look at the high end market index, which is a brand new feature on card letter. We just came out today with these high, mid, and low end indexes. The high-end market index, meaning all cards in our database, 5,000 or more, those are up 7x over that two-and-a-half-year span from April of 19 to August of 21. So high-end is up 7x. Trey's market is up 9x. But the black one of one, up 31x. 
And I think there's going to be continued consolidation into one of ones. Maybe not as niche as like what I do, where I'm, you know, the, the card that's sitting on my desk right now is an Obsidian second year McCaffrey one of one. You know, that's pretty niche. <laughs> that card's never going to go up 31X. But like those Prism Black one of ones of marquee rookies, those could do that. And there's almost no other card that's going to do that. So betting on a one of one is, is betting big and it could fail spectacularly or it could be a grand slam. And I, that's, that's the way I would sum up the market for those. Go big or go home. We had, if Lameem's out there listening, he's loving the airtime we just gave to Trey Young. If Josh is out there listening, he's shaking his head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Good stuff. Uh, Everyone go check out Crossover. Go check out Card Ladder. Chris, appreciate the episode as always. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, buddy. Hope you all learned something. I always am inspired when Chris comes on very thoughtful about his approach to the hobby and what he's building over at Card Ladder. With that squad, everyone, enjoy the hobby. Enjoy sports cards. There's a lot going on in the world, a lot going on in your life. Take a step back, enjoy some cards this week, and appreciate you. Take care of yourself, take care of others around you. More stacking slabs as always next week. Bye.